Good morning. morning. My name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Calvary, and it's an honor to be able to open the Word of God together. If you have your Bibles, you can open to Acts 517. The Pew Bibles in front of you, that's going to be on page 532 in the smaller Bibles, and in the bigger Bibles will be on page 1011. And so Acts 517, in the small Bibles, it's page 532, and the larger ones, it's page 1011. We're continuing in our series through the books of Acts where we're looking at the growth of the church. And there's two essential questions you could ask about the success of the church. The first question you could ask is, will the church succeed in its mission? So will the church succeed? Will it succeed in its mission? The second question you could ask is, how will the church succeed in its mission? So will the church succeed, and if so, how? Christ gives the mission of the church in Acts 1.8, and this verse kind of outlines the whole book of Acts. Jesus tells his apostles, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so the mission of the church is this, to witness to Christ, to share the good news of the message of Jesus Christ to the end of the earth. And Christ tells his apostles, you will be my witnesses but they will do so as they receive power from the Holy Spirit. So Christ promises here the success of the church. However, even if we affirm that yes, the church will succeed in its mission, if we have the wrong expectations of what that success might look like, then we may be tempted to view the church as failing when it's actually succeeding. So for example, if your expectation of the success of the church is that it will be like a political kingdom or that it will have widespread and full-on cultural acceptance, then you may look at persecution of the church in times like first century AD and as, as Christians were thrown into the Colosseum and killed. Or you may look in places like North Africa or other places throughout the world, and you may see severe persecution. You may say, the church is failing. Or you could look to legislation and laws that are given, maybe from our own government or other governments, and you may say, you see these laws, the church has failed. Or you might just look in our own culture in Boulder and you may see some cultural opposition to the gospel or maybe just indifference and you may say the church is failing. However, if we expect a kingdom that follows in the pattern and footsteps of Christ, whose kingdom flourished despite opposition and who succeeded in his mission even as he gave up his own life, then what that does is it gives us an understanding, a way, a framework to see the success of the church despite opposition. And this is important because one of the dangers that we actually face in being confident to share about Christ and the message of the gospel is this sense that the church has lost its place, that we've lost our mission. And this sense can be felt in statements like this, young people are leaving the church, cultures changed, things just aren't what they used to be. But the passage we're going to read today gives us a helpful picture because it shows us the church flourishing amidst opposition, without political power, and in the face of suffering, and yet being faithful to the mission, to witness to the gospel. And our text is going to affirm today for us that yes, the church will succeed in its mission, but it's also going to give us a helpful picture of what that success might actually look like. And as we read this text today, we're going to ask the question, What encouragements do we have to continue the mission of the church, which is to witness to the gospel to the end of the earth? What encouragements do we have to continue the mission of the church and to continue to witness despite opposition? And so we're going to discuss this text a little bit and read it, but before we get into that, I would just like to pray.
So if you'd pray with me. Dear Lord, we pray as we open your word that you would give us understanding. We know that it's your spirit who gives us life and understanding and power. And so I pray, Lord, that you would today encourage and strengthen us through your word to be faithful witnesses and ambassadors to the gospel, to continue in the mission of the church, and to seek your kingdom above all else. We rely upon your strength for this, Jesus. Amen. All right, the first encouragement we're going to find as we jump into this text is that God has all authority. We're going to read this story, and in the story that we're about to read, the apostles who were sent as messengers of Jesus are not in the place of political power. There's Jewish religious leaders who are actually in the place of political power. But what the author, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, is going to do is he's going to play on the power dynamic in this story to reveal that God is the one who's actually in charge. And he's actually going to use irony and humor to make this point. So look with me at Acts 5, 17 to 18. This is the attempt of religious leaders to stop the apostles from witnessing to Christ. It says, but the high priest rose up and all who were with them, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. Here it talks about the high priests and the Sadducees being filled with jealousy. Throughout the books of, book of Acts, it often talks about being filled with the Spirit of God. But here, they're not filled with the Spirit of God. They're filled with a spirit of jealousy. They're jealous of the apostles, which makes sense. Because in the context, in the verses just before this, Luke has been talking about how the apostles were regularly performing signs. How they were healing the sick. The number of those who were joining the sect of Judaism, known as the Christians, was growing and people longed, it said, even for the, just the shadow of Peter to fall on them. But you note the irony here. These religious leaders are filled with jealousy about the influence of the apostles, and yet they're in the position of power, or so it seems. And yet they become jealous and insecure because they see the influence of the apostles. And so what they do is they throw them into prison. And in verses 19 to 21, show us how their power grab doesn't work. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and to speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. The, temple, the, the apostles are miraculously freed from prison. This angel comes and he breaks them out, sent by God, to, and then he tells them, you're to go into the temple and proclaim all the words of this life. That, that phrase, all the words of this life, is a reference most likely just to the idea of preaching the whole message of the life that is found in Jesus. In Acts 3.15, Jesus has been called the author of life, and so here they're going and they're proclaiming the message of the life that's found in Jesus. But notice again the irony here. The religious leaders are trying to silence the apostles, and yet, when they're broken out of the temple, the instructions, or when they're broken out of the jail, their instructions essentially are this, go and stand in the temple and publicly proclaim Jesus. And that's just what they do. As they're released from prison, they go and publicly proclaim Jesus. So they've just been publicly shamed for preaching the gospel. And their first response is, we're getting out, we're going to go stand in the temple courts, in the middle of everyone, and preach the name of Jesus. Their attempt doesn't work. Something that's important to understand about biblical narrative, which is what we're reading, the book of Acts, 
is that in biblical narrative, it's highly, highly selective. Only the most critical and crucial details are included. And so in the following verses, it's really interesting the detail that Luke is going into to talk about the search for the apostles. Because I think he's trying to cue us into something about really the irony of the situation and the power dynamic that's happening. And so as it goes on in verses 21 to 24, this is what we read. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senators of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. So they've gathered gathered together this council, and they say, let's get the apostles and let's talk to them. They're thinking, how can we keep them silent? How can we keep them from preaching this message of Christ? How can we keep this movement from growing? But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. So they're conferring as a council, how do we stop this message? And then Luke goes on in detail, and he tells us about how these officers go to the temple, and they find the prison guards are there. They find that the doors are locked, but when they open them, the apostles are gone. So all the while, while they're conspiring, how do we silence these apostles? What's happening? Luke sets up the scene perfectly for us. Verse 25 says this, And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. It's in this moment that their authority is just exposed as a sham. They've done everything they could to silence them. And yet, while they're conferring about how to silence the gospel, the apostles are standing in the temple courts, proclaiming the message of Jesus. And verse 26, I think, just finishes this all off in such an incredible way. This is the apostles once again being arrested and going through the same rhythms. They're once again going to be arrested, but notice who's afraid in this verse. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them in, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Again, think about this. If you're getting arrested, you should be afraid. The people arresting you shouldn't be the ones who are afraid. And yet, here are the apostles, seeming to willingly go with them and be arrested. And yet, those who are afraid are those who are arresting them. I think what Luke is trying to do through showing us this ironic power dynamic is though the Jewish religious leaders appear to be in charge and in authority, they're really not. God is the one who is clearly in charge. He's clearly leading and guiding and directing his people. So in the next few verses, the apostles are going to be questioned by the high priest. And they ask, you know, why do you keep preaching Christ? Why are you trying to bring this man's blood upon us? Didn't you hear us? We said, don't continue to preach the message of Jesus. And the response is so simple, yet so profound. They respond in verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. It's simple to them. We must obey God rather than men. It's as though they had peeked behind the curtain and they hear the loud voice of these religious leaders saying, don't preach Jesus. They speak with an authority and a gusto, but when they look behind the curtain, what do they see? They see weak, feeble, insecure men grasping at power. And at the same time, they see the authority of God that we must obey God rather than men. In our own culture, there's a resistance to the gospel. 
Often the gospel can be seen as offensive. Perhaps that's because it, it claims that hope is found in Jesus alone, that he's our hope for eternal life, that our life is found and bound up in him and nowhere else. Uh, it's also sometimes seen as condemning because it exposes our sin and it says that we need a Savior and that in ourselves we actually do have sin and weakness. And it's going to undermine some of the values of our culture. But let's make a suggestion this morning. What if, what if this was the case? What if resistance to the gospel, as in this story, was not actually a sign of the weakness of the gospel or the irrelevance of the gospel? But what if resistance to the gospel was actually a sign of the power of the gospel? That it exposes us. It reveals our weakness. It reveals the authority and the power of Christ. And that perhaps objections and resistance we see to the gospel is as a result of the power of the message of the gospel in Christ's reign. But also notice this. The gospel is authoritative. God is authoritative. He's reigning in this scenario but the apostles are so humble, faithful, patient, persistent. You notice that they don't play the same power games that these religious leaders are playing. They could have easily said, oh, you want to throw us in prison? We're going to throw you in prison. We're going to take you out. We're going to bring the wrath of God upon you. They're patient, though. They don't play the same power game. And so here's what's significant. Is that not only does the kingdom of God come with a different power, but the power in the kingdom of God comes with a different ethic. And so our role as Christians is not to try and seize power and to overthrow people according to the same games that the kingdoms of our world play, in whichever scenarios that may be, but our role actually as Christians is to witness faithfully to the authority of Christ as humble servants. It's, it's this ethic, it's this idea of we must obey God rather than men, and yet as we do that, we do so faithfully patiently enduring evil and opposition. And I think this is actually what our culture deeply longs for. In the midst of so many rhetoric about, so much rhetoric about so much ideas, in the midst of a flurry of political rhetoric we're going to get in 2020, the kingdom of God offers us a patient endurance and a kindness that I think the world is actually longing for. And that is one of our greatest witnesses to the gospel is the patient endurance of Christians in the face of suffering that is patterned after the life of Christ, who endured evil all the way to the point of death in obedience to his Father. And we're enabled to do this because we know that we are secure in the hands of God who has all authority. And so the first encouragement we have to witness from this text is that God has all authority. The second encouragement we find in this text to witness to the gospel is that God has given us his spirit. It can be really easy to read a story like this and say, okay, yes, the apostles were bold in their witness to the gospel, but they were apostles. They walked with Jesus. They saw his miracles. He was so actively clear and present in their lives, and he's so clearly present in their ministry. But I'm no apostle. And it's true, the apostles have a unique role in the foundation of the church. But we have to ask the question here, where does the apostles' boldness actually come from? In verses 30 to 31, after they state, we must obey God rather than men, this is what they go on to say, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. 
The apostles here do what they've done at other times in Acts, and they actually put the blame of Christ's death on this council. They say, Jesus, whom you killed. But then they go on to speak of his exaltation to the right hand of God. And so notice this. The apostles don't merely recognize Jesus as a crucified Savior, but a crucified, resurrected and reigning Savior, who is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father as leader and Savior. At the end of verse 31, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So what does Christ do as he's resurrected after he has been killed? He goes and he stands to give repentance and forgiveness of sins, beginning with Israel. And the apostles are here as ambassadors of that message proclaiming the good news of Jesus. So there's a difference between being a history teacher and an ambassador. So a history teacher can tell you about people who once lived or kingdoms that once existed. So a history teacher could tell you about Abraham Lincoln and the life he lived. Or a history teacher could tell you about Genghis Khan. But a history teacher will not invite you into the active rule and reign of Genghis Khan to participate in his kingdom. Why? Because that ship sailed. It's a little too late. But an ambassador is actually an embodiment of the kingdom that they're representing. And the apostles here are not ambassadors merely to Christ who wants to live, but to the reigning and resurrected Christ who is actively working in the world to bring about salvation and repentance. They're there to invite people to participate in the kingdom of God, and they see Christ as resurrected and reigning and empowering them by his Holy, their Holy, his Holy Spirit. So this is what verse 32 says, and we are witnesses to these things, to the gospel they're preaching, and so is the Holy Spirit, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So we may not be witnesses, eyewitnesses, to the life and ministry of Jesus, but the Holy Spirit is. And what it says here is that the Holy Spirit is given to those who obey him. Every Christian has the witness of the Holy Spirit in their lives, in their lives to testify to the gospel for themselves and through them as the ambassadors to others. And notice that even the apostles in Acts 1 who were eyewitnesses to Jesus were commanded not to go out on their mission until they had received power from on high until they had received the Holy Spirit. So where does the boldness of the apostles come from? From the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that indwells every single believer. And to think about that, it's the same resurrected Christ. It's the same Holy Spirit living today in believers through whom Christ is building the church. So we're not called to merely spread the message of a man who once lived or give a nice set of religious disciplines. There's much wisdom to be found in Christ and in his gospel. It's more than that. It's beyond that. We're actually called as ambassadors to invite people to participate in the kingdom of God. That's the role of every Christian. And we can see it so clearly here. The apostles were sent by God. They were uh, given the spirit and they were there as ambassadors in their situations of life to those around them. But what if we understood ourselves in the same way? That so too Christ today was building his church. That he's put you in your family. He's put you in your school. He's put you in your career. He's put you in the times and the places where you exist so that you might be the means by which he builds the church that every Christian is an ambassador to Jesus Christ, 
the reigning king, who is through us proclaiming the message of the gospel into the world. And this isn't just something for a few missionaries, a few select Christians, a few uh, select ministers. This is actually something that is intended for everyone who is in Christ because the Holy Spirit has been given to all those who obey him, all those who have come to know the gospel and submitted themselves to Christ. God's plan, think about this, is to use normal, ordinary people like you, like me, like us, to spread the message of the gospel. How does Christ intend to build his church? Through his spirit and through his people, to go out into the world and proclaim the message of the gospel. So the first encouragement we find to witness from the text is that God has all authority and he looks after his people. The second encouragement we find is that he's actually given us his spirit. And he's actively working in us. His design is that we would be the means by which the gospel goes forth. And he's given us the spirit as a witness to the truth. The third encouragement we find in this text to witness to Christ is that God guarantees the success of the church. The council was ready to kill the apostles. They did not like this message they were preaching. So verse 33 says, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But then we meet Gamaliel, and Gamaliel is a really interesting figure. He's an esteemed Pharisee in the council, but he's actually the one through whom the apostle Paul learned the ways of Judaism growing up, sitting at his feet. So here's Gamaliel, this, this figure, and he's going to give some advice to the council about what they should do with the apostles. This is advice starting in verse 35. He says, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Though Gamaliel doesn't seem convinced of Christianity, and we, we don't necessarily have any evidence that he ever came to know Christ, he seems hesitant here to harm the apostles. Because he seems to realize that if this is just another human movement, it's going to fail on its own. You really don't need to help it. Human movements come and go all the time. But soon enough, they're gone. But if this is actually from God, then if they're to oppose this, they might be found actually opposing God himself. And that's something that Gamaliel wants to avoid. But we learned this incredible truth actually from Gamaliel here. And it's this, that all human kingdoms will fail, but God's kingdom will last. All human kingdoms will fail, but God's kingdom will last. Human kingdoms, human movements are like castles in the sand. You let enough waves of the ocean wash over them, and soon enough, you can't even tell that they were there. You let death, you let decay, you let time, those waves wash over it, and soon enough, the movement will amount to nothing. But God's kingdom is like the building that's built upon the rock, and it endures the storms. With Christ as the cornerstone, the kingdom of God is the sure foundation that weathers the storms and the test of time, death, and decay. 
What's fascinating is that the kingdoms that Gamaliel mentions in this story are kingdoms that fail as their leader dies. So there's this big movement that rises up, their leader dies, and it comes to nothing. But think about how different that is from Christ's kingdom. Christ's kingdom doesn't fail at his death. Christ's kingdom flourishes at his death. Christ is crucified, and yet his gospel is now going throughout the world as Christ is leader and savior of his people. As he's building the church, as he's actively alive and present. And Gamaliel gives us this incredible thought. You know, if this is of man, it's going to fail. Just let it run its course. But if it's of God, it will last. It will endure. You'd, be found, you'd find yourself opposing God. And then we gather here, 2,000 years after this prediction, with men and women all over the world to proclaim and worship the name of Jesus Christ. You know, we're going to hear doomsday predictions about the church, how the church is going away, how it's losing its relevance, how it's losing its power. And what we need to understand is that some churches will. Churches that tie themselves to human movements and ideologies will ultimately fail as those movements and ideologies pass away to new movements and new ideologies and new movements and new ideologies. But the church that yokes itself, that, that depends upon Christ, will persevere because Christ lives to lead his people, and he will not abandon his church. You see, to believe that the church is going to fail is not ultimately an affront to Christians. It's actually an affront to Christ. To say, Christ, you won't build your church. You won't sustain your people. Your death will fail to accomplish what it intended to accomplish. You will not save the people for whom you have died. To say the church is a fail is an affront to Christ who is building his church. To believe that he will not succeed to build the church. And so as we think about it, we're in 2020 and we're in Boulder. We ask, what's the trick? What's the success? What's the trick to success for the church? And I think it's simply this. Faithful dependence upon Christ our leader. What's the trick for the church succeeding in Boulder and Thornton and Erie? Throughout the world, it's depending upon Christ. You see, the church doesn't succeed because we're cool enough. The church, the message of the gospel doesn't go forward from us because we have all the right answers to all the difficult questions, because we have all the right strategies of how to build the church. Ultimately, the church succeeds as we faithfully depend on Christ, as we go to him, as we trust in him, as we rely on him. And this is the confidence we can have as a church and individually, even to continue to proclaim the message of the gospel, that we don't proclaim our own strength and our own power, but we actually just faithfully proclaim the message of Christ, believing that he has chosen to use normal, ordinary, broken people to build his church. Because he's equipped us with his spirit and he's redeeming us and redeeming the world as he now lives and empowers us with his spirit and oversees the success of his church. So we find encouragement to witness because God is all authority. He's given us his spirit, and he guarantees the success of the church. And the final encouragement we have here is one that subverts our expectations. The final encouragement we have to witness to the gospel here is that God uses even our suffering for joy and good and the upbuilding of the church. The council takes the advice of Gamaliel to not kill the apostles, but they still beat them. So verses 44 to 41 say this, 
And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Now, the beating the apostles receive here is likely the 40 lashes minus one. And this was a severe beating that was given out by the Jews. And the beating would have essentially been a flogging. And this was a beating that could, on rare occasions, result in death, but was normally just a pretty brutal beating. Uh, This is the beating that Christ received. And this is also a beating that Paul received multiple times. And it's the type of thing that it would have torn apart their flesh, shocked their system, and caused them a great amount of suffering. And so this is no small beating. You can easily read over in a text and say, okay, they got a beating. No, this is a brutal beating they've just received. But notice what happens right again after they suffer. This is where we see irony again. The apostles are rejoicing. Rejoicing right after getting beat. And they're not rejoicing despite the fact that they just suffered, even though they just suffered. It actually says that they rejoice because, on behalf of their suffering. So verse 41 says this, They left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They're rejoicing that they're worthy to suffer. It's as though they look at the marks on their body and they say, do you see this? This means I belong to Jesus. This means that I'm worthy to suffer with Christ. Is there anything more precious that I could be counted worthy to suffer for Christ, that they would know me and identify me and beat me because I'm with Christ? Think of Paul at the end of Galatians. He says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Paul sees in his suffering this identification. The the marks he's received in his flesh for following Christ are just identifications, reminders that he ultimately belongs to Jesus Christ. We see a similar idea in Philippians 3, 10 through 11 about this rejoicing in suffering. Paul says about Christ that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You see, Paul knew that rising with Christ would not happen apart from entering into the suffering of Christ. And we could ask the question, you know, do you want to share in the victory of Jesus? Do you want to share in the power of Jesus? And it seems like the answer is like, yes, of course. But here's another question. Do you want to share in the sufferings of Christ? My brother Doug has said, there's, there's a phrase is, you know, that there's one thing you can't do in heaven. And the idea is the one thing you can't do in heaven is you can't make converts to Christianity. Because everyone already knows. I think we'll spend all of eternity rejoicing the gospel, but people will already know about Jesus if they're there. But Doug has said, there's something else we should maybe add to that. Uh, beyond just preaching the gospel to people who have never heard before, another thing that we can't do in heaven is you can't suffer with Jesus. There's at least one way in this life that we are meant to share in intimacy and union with Christ that is for us now to embrace, for us now to experience. And for sure, we will be reaping the fruit of that for all eternity. But today, there is something for us to share in the suffering of Christ. And Paul understood that suffering was actually an essential part of his ministry. Colossians 1.24, Paul says this, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. 
And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. And there's something really interesting here. He says that something is lacking in Christ's afflictions. This can't be his death for our sins. He himself bore our sins and his body on the tree. We know that Christ has dealt with our sins once for all. That's done. That's not lacking in the suffering of Christ. What I think here is lacking in the suffering of Christ that Paul is queuing into is that there is a need for the continual suffering of the people of God to fill up the full measure of Christ's suffering for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. And when his body and we as his body suffer, that's filling up and participating in the suffering of Christ for the sake of the advancement of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And that's an essential part of our ministry as Christians. It's not a hindrance to our ministry. It's an opportunity for us to share in the ministry. So we have to ask the question then, what does that look like in our lives? How do we actually share in the suffering of Christ? It'd be easy when reading a text like this to just go over it and say, hey, it's not going to be physical suffering. Don't worry about that. But honestly, for some of you, it might be. And even as we think about this, historically, the church has entered into physical suffering. And perhaps for some of you, it may be that. And also, we need to understand that many of the places in the world now where the gospel has not taken foot yet, the gospel has not been, where people have not been reached with the gospel, are also the most dangerous places in the world. So we should consider that. A willingness and eagerness to share in the sufferings of Christ. And maybe that sounds a little extra or a little extreme, and you think, okay, that's pretty intense. But I would argue that that's not just something for some Christians to have that sort of mentality, but that's actually the expectation of every Christian, not just a few select missionaries, not just some other Christian other than me, but that's actually the expectation of every Christian that we'd be willing to enter in on a daily basis into self-denial and suffering for Christ. Luke, in Luke 9.23, Jesus himself sets this expectation for us. He told us this. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. He gives us an assurance if we give up our lives for him, we save it. But he also gives us this expectation that either we give up our life following him or we give up our life every day as we bear our cross and following him. The point is that there is no such thing as a Christian life outside of suffering. And this may not always look like what it looked like for the apostles, but perhaps it looks like rejection in other ways. You know, the reality is I know for many of you, and for some of you in the future, there's going to be cases where because of your identification with Jesus, people really aren't going to want to have much to do with you. Even if you're patient and enduring and kind, there may be people who just say, enough. I don't want to have to do with what you have to do with. No doubt some of you have experienced that and will continue to experience things like that. But maybe we ask, you know, what if I'm not facing rejection or suffering on behalf of following Christ? And, and here's a challenge that I want to give to us this morning, and I'm going to sit under with you. But here's, here's a challenge from this text, a, a question that emerged from it. Are we sharing the gospel in such a way as to invite suffering in our lives? Like an honest reflection on that question, are we sharing the gospel in such a way as to invite suffering into our lives? In Acts 5.42, it says this, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. 
they just continue in their witness to the gospel. And we see the church continue to grow as it goes throughout Acts. Now, as we end this time, I would assume that many of you who are following Christ may feel somewhat insufficient, inadequate, or weak in your own witness to the gospel. And the answer that we find in this text, or the encouragement we find in this text, is not merely just to bear down on our own strength and say, okay, I'm going to do it this time. I'm going to work harder. Yes, let's absolutely go for it. But I think the encouragement we actually find in this text is to look for our strength from God himself. As we look at the apostles, we don't ultimately see the story of great men who did great things for the kingdom of God in their own strength. We see normal, ordinary men who are used in extraordinary ways by the risen and reigning Christ who empowered them by his Holy Spirit. And so our encouragement is not to look in ourselves for the strength to be witnesses to Christ, to fulfill the mission of the church, to see the gospel go to the ends of the earth, but our encouragement is actually to go to Christ. You see, in every way in which we are called as Christians to engage in the mission of the church, God equips us for our work. So we're called to give up our lives to follow Christ. But Christ has already given up his life for us. We're called to reach the ends of the earth with the gospel. But when Christ commissioned his disciples, in Matthew 28, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. And he promises them that he'll be with them. And so we go forward with the authority, with the power of Christ, See, we're called to be bold in our witness to the gospel, but God has given us his Holy Spirit who emboldens us, who powers us, who witnesses to the gospel in our own lives. And even we're called to enter into suffering. But as far as we can go into suffering, Christ has already gone all the way to death. And he doesn't stand outside of our suffering and look on, but he awaits us in our suffering with his presence, with his joy, so that he would comfort us in our suffering. See, this is the logic of the gospel. Every single thing we are asked to do in Christ, God empowers us to do. And everything we are asked to do and to engage in is ultimately a blessing of the gospel that we could share in the ministry of Christ, that our lives could be used for eternally significant purposes in building the kingdom of God, and that every believer is empowered with the Holy Spirit so that we might be witnesses in this world to the gospel. So today, would we embrace our mission to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth, but would we also embrace the strength of Christ to do that? Would we see the way in which God has empowered us to do that, and the way he's prepared the way for us to go forward so that we would prepare the way for Christ to return? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we do rely on your strength. I pray that you would embolden and empower your church here in each one of us through your spirit. I pray for those who have not yet come to know you, that they would, by your strength, by your word, come to know you. And I pray, Lord, that we would engage in the mission of the church. I pray that as we go out this week into our schools, into our careers, into our families, and all the different situations you're going to have us go, I pray that we would see ourselves as your people, as the embodiment of Christ, as ambassadors in the world to proclaim the message. And Lord, I pray that we would rely upon you and your strength. I pray that we would rely upon your gospel. And Lord, you'd give us a deep humility, a patient endurance in the midst of opposition, 
and an ethic that aligns with Christ, that would be a witness to this world of something that it so deeply longs for. So Lord, we pray to be faithful to you, and we rely on your spirit. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.